hi, I'm Lindsay. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm really grateful that I completely forgot that I <laughs> said I would do this <laughs> because um, I didn't have to be nervous all day. Um, I, uh, I hate public speaking and uh, I often like lie to myself and tell myself like, I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to be useful. Um, but it dawned on me that I am genuinely grateful to like have to do this, even though I hate it <laughs> because like the amount of anxiety I feel before speaking at a meeting is nothing compared to like the anxiety I used to feel when absolutely nothing was happening before. <laughs> like there'd be nothing going on. And I thought the world was ending and I felt like I was going to die and there was not enough alcohol in the world to numb that. Um, so yeah, I would, I would rather have to do this every single day in order to keep this life rather than like go back and have to live one day of my old life, which, um, is <laughs> when, uh, when I was drinking, well, let me go back to the beginning. Um, so when I, I had a shitty childhood, my whole childhood was crap and full of abuse and drugs and alcohol and, um, I ended up um, running away from home right after, right after I turned 14 and was homeless for a while. And that's when I like really, really started drinking. <laughs> I had my first drink that I remember was at four years old. So I had been drinking for a while, but that's when I was like blackout, fucked up all the time, every single day. And I drank about a handle jug of booze every day for the next 20 years after that. Um, and uh and I basically like built my life around alcoholism. My number one goal in life was to become a bartender. And I did that when I was 21. And so I was like, great, I'm, I'm living the dream. I get people buy me drinks at work. I get to drink for free. Um, but yeah, it all kind of, you know, started to go downhill. <laughs> um, but like, even to the very end, alcohol was always my solution. Lots of other drugs too. But um, alcohol was like my main go-to. Um but it was always the solution for me. Like I never had those mornings where I was hungover and was like, Oh, I'm never drinking again. Like if I woke up feeling like shit, I had to hurry up and drink enough so that I could feel better. Like even if alcohol caused the problem, it was always my solution. Um, and then I was diagnosed with, um, stage one liver fibrosis. And my doctor told me if I kept going the way I was, I would have a couple of years left to live. And uh, he reminded me not that long ago that my response to that was, well, I guess I'm going hard for the next couple of years because there's no possible way I could quit drinking. There's absolutely no way. Uh, it's all I've ever known. I did it like every waking moment. I had to wake up to drink in order to not like feel like I'm going to die in my sleep. <laughs> um, and so I just was 100% sure like that was the only thing I was sure of in life, that there's no way I could not drink and be okay, you know? Um, and now I look back and I'm like, how did I function <laughs> it? Like this life that I have now is so incredibly different from what it was. And, you know, the book talks about, we'll have a life beyond our wildest dreams. And like, I don't know what I even would have thought my life could look like, but no part of me thought that I could just like be okay. You know, like just not be drinking all the time and not want to die, like just kind of be at peace with things. Um, but anyway, yeah, so like I was miserable and I wanted to die. Um, and the reason I showed up at AA was not because I was dying, but because I wasn't dying fast enough. And I was so miserable 
Um, and for the first time in my life, I had the thought like, maybe alcohol's making this worse. <laughs> maybe because I was really depressed. I was like, maybe if uh, I wasn't so drunk all the time, my emotions wouldn't be so heightened. Um, so I went to AA and made myself a drink for the hour. Cause there's no way I could go an hour without drinking. <laughs> um, and I've been here ever since I went in and out a little bit. Uh, I did not get it right away. Um, but I have, uh, sorry, my sobriety date is two, two, 2020. Um, so I have a little over three years. Um, but yeah, when I first came in, I was going to a shit ton of meetings every day and didn't get a sponsor, didn't work the steps. Like I just, I didn't know that there was a book that had the steps <laughs> very clearly outlined in it. I would just see them posted on the wall and go, I'm like, I'm not going to do that stuff. Like I can't give anything over to God. I don't know. I like, I don't know what God is. I don't know what I believe in, you know? So there's no way I'm going to give my will and my life over to that. Fuck this. Um, but I kept going to meetings and I kept going to meetings and uh, also didn't know that a sponsor kind of like explains all of that to you. <laughs> I thought it was just going to be like left to me to figure out. Um, and uh, and I just stayed miserable. And I finally, I eventually decided that I'd rather die than be sober because at that point, everything was sobriety's fault. Like every single way that I ever felt it was because I was sober because I didn't have my solution. Uh, so I went back to drinking and turns out I was just as fucking miserable. <laughs> and I finally realized it wasn't alcohol or it wasn't sobriety's fault. You know, it was me, like I'm the problem. Uh, and so I finally decided I was willing to do whatever it takes. Like when they used to read how it works in the meetings and they say, if you're willing to go to any lengths, I would laugh like, fuck no, there's no way. Like, I don't want what you guys have. You're all insane. If you like think that you're happy, you're crazy. There's no way anyone could be happy without drinking or maybe you can, but not me. Um, but I finally decided like, I'm willing to go to any lengths. I didn't think it was going to work, but I just said, fuck it. I'll give it a go. Cause nothing else <laughs> is working in my life either. Um, and so I went to rehab and I got a sponsor and I worked the steps and I luckily had a sponsor who was willing to meet with me every day in the beginning. So we went through the steps pretty quickly. Um, of course I, you know, hung out on my fourth step for a little bit, like most people do, but, uh, was very grateful when I got it done. Um, but yeah, it like, you know, ever since I've, I've worked the steps and continue to work them, everything is just so different. Like it blows my mind sometimes when I'll be doing something and then, like have a flashback of, you know, when I used to try to do that thing drinking and it was awful. And like, I can't believe I just did it. And like, didn't even like, everything was fine. You know? Um, I, uh, I also realized that every single one of my problems was because I was thinking about myself all the time and how I wanted things to be and trying to control things to make them the way I want to be. Um, and I came in here like, I'm not a selfish person. Like I give people rights home. I give homeless people money. Like I'm not, I'm not selfish at all. Um, and then, you know, and I have no ego, like not me. I hate myself, but turns out thinking about how much you hate yourself all the time <laughs> is ego. Um, and I was very, very, very selfish. Um, and so like finding a higher power was the biggest thing for me, which is still, you know, it's not like oh, I figured out, you know, if God exists and what God is, and then like devoted my life to that, whatever it is, it's more for me. Like, I don't, I don't know, you know, if somebody had all the answers to the universe and they told me there's nothing, 
I like, I wouldn't be surprised. Cool. That's fine. Whatever. But like, I personally choose to believe, like, I feel like it's impossible for me at least to not believe that there's something else going on in the universe. There's like something bigger than me, something more powerful. Um, and so like, I choose to just trust in whatever that thing is, you know? Okay. Thank you. Um, which basically just means like I get to give up control, which is my number one problem, you know? Um, and so, okay. Um, and so like, you know, now, now I pray and things get better, which, um, is not something I ever thought I would say in my life, but prayer has literally worked every time for me because it's not like, it's not like, oh, I'm, you know, asking some man in the sky for things. And then he delivers them immediately. It like my version of praying is just going like, and like, usually like, you know, when I start to get all pissy or, you know, whatever, like in a bad mood, or I'm like mad at somebody for no reason. I'm like, okay, I need to pray. Um, cause there's something wrong with me clearly. And then like my version of praying is just asking how I can be useful to other people. So literally all it is, is just me stop stopping thinking about myself and start thinking about other people. And like the second I stop thinking about myself, I'm better. I'm fine. <laughs> um, and I get to be useful to other people. Um, so yeah, it, uh, the, the, um, <laughs> now I'm like, Oh God, I have a few seconds. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess, um, I highly recommend getting a sponsor and working the steps, um, because it changed my life in ways that I never, ever thought could be possible that I still am like blown away by and don't understand. Um, and I wouldn't go back for anything. You know, people, I used to hear people say like, I wouldn't trade my worst day sober for my best day drunk. And I'm like, you're fucking crazy. I had some good times when I was partying, <laughs> but now I get it. Like, there's no way I would give up even a second of this life to go back to that one. So like, cause even when things suck, like I'm fine, you know, life is still total shit. Sometimes the world still sucks, <laughs> but like I'm at peace, you know, I have ways to deal with things. I have tools to deal with things that aren't just fucking trying to numb myself um so yeah thanks uh, my name is calvin i'm an alcoholic and uh thank you Lindsay. you know uh I, I i i like that when you talk about giving up control i'm going to talk about that later on for me um i have a sponsor and i do sponsor to other men and women in rooms of alcoholics anonymous people say you sponsor women uh, it's okay with my wife my wife and i we stare at, we, we celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary April 15th and uh, took a six day road trip, three days in LA and three days in, in Vegas. And uh, we just got back Tuesday, but, uh, but she's okay with it. And I am too. I have a, a lot of faith in, uh, uh, in working with the people that I work with, you know, uh, um, I have a sponsor. And like I said, I sponsor other people. I've had my sponsor uh, since the first day I came in for, since I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, he was a, um, the, 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 really the first sponsor I've ever had. And, uh, I'll get into that story later on too, because, uh, most of us, <clears throat> when someone suggests we do things a certain way, like Lindsay was talking about, we want to always be in control. And I didn't want anybody controlling my life. I came from a family of alcoholics. My alcohol killed my, uh, alcohol related, related death, deaths killed my father all my uncles and my grandfather. They all drank themselves to death. I have no horror stories about their drinking other than the fact that they were alcoholic. They were happy alcoholic. 
They would sit up and laugh until they almost urinated on themselves. They would just get drunk. And that's the way it was. Um, uh, the nightmare came, I guess, when my father in between when he was drinking. Um, he and my mother would have arguments and uh, different things would happen. I wasn't an abused child. Was chastised a lot because I was a hard-headed little boy, but uh, uh, I'm glad my mother did that. And uh, um, today she uh, she looks at me and she says, I should have never spanked you. And I said, if, if you hadn't, I'd, I'd be dead because that's what it caught my attention. And uh, I saw it, it wasn't so much the pain as it was the disappointment in her eyes that she had to do that. I, uh, um, when I came in, I, I came in here late. You know, they said Michael Jordan started playing basketball at 13. I came into rooms of alcohol, I, not rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started drinking at about 20. I was in, in Vietnam and uh, I had a, um, I had a, um, a wonderful life up until that time. And I thought it was better. And I remember my first drink was Canadian Club. CC and Coke was my really first drink. I was raised in West Oakland. And a lot of the kids did a lot of things. I was raised in church. I come from a family of pastors, other than alcoholics, uh, pastors and bishops. My sister is my pastor. And my brother was my pastor. He's a, he was a bishop. He passed in 99. So I had a I had that religious background they talked about in page 93. And uh, uh, my sponsor, when I met him, he didn't. And uh, um, I had a, um, I had my first, I married before I went to Vietnam. That was a nightmare because I came back uh, two years later and the marriage ended. And before it ended, we had my daughter. And uh, I was drinking then, I was having fun. I remember when I watched Jurassic Park, uh, when Jeff Goblin says, he was telling the people, oh, yeah, first there's laughing and there's joy and there's fun. And then there's terror and there's blood when these dinosaurs get loose. Well, the dinosaur for me was alcohol. That was my Tyrannosaurus Rex. And he didn't get loose. He was very well trained for a little while. And when he got loose, it, it became crazy. And uh, um, I, I, uh, I came out of the military and my wife and I separated. And when we separated, the fun with alcohol started. I drank very heavily. I drank everything I could drink. And uh, if it, if it, if I didn't have alcohol and I had enough money, and I had a good job. I hired out before I even went in the Army. I worked for the railroad. I retired there with 40 and a half years. It was only through the grace of God that I did not lose that job, having a wife and raising, raising a, a five boys and a, and a girl. And uh, um, my drinking on the... Well, I won't get to the job yet. Well, I'll go back to, to when I uh, met my wife. When I met my, my second wife, still drinking heavy, there was other substance involved at the time. And uh, I had met my wife through my sister. And I came to my sister's house one day. Me and my friend had left the bar. They had a bar downtown open called Ivy's. And then we went to this uh, this uh, model tryout at uh at Mosswood Park in Oakland to get some phone numbers, meet some girls. We came home, came back to my sister's house, and there was a young lady sitting there. And I asked my sister, uh, who's a white girl? And my sister said, what white girl? I said, the one sitting over with the blonde hair. She says, oh, no, you drink too much for her. You, you're not the right kind of guy for her. I do not want you to meet her. And uh, I did meet her. 
and we talked for a, quite a long time. And uh, and then her boyfriend picked her up. And I said, well, well, that's over. Won't see her again. That was in December of 1975. April, she called. And I was drunk that day. And April, she called to talk to my sister. And I said, who's calling? She said, Denise. And I said, oh, it's her. And so I invite her out on a date. And that's when our relationship started. Dr. Bob says in uh, doc, in his uh, in uh, uh, Dr. Bob's nightmare, we have the, the we have the knack for picking up the world's finest women. And I'm sure for the for the women they have the knack to pick up the world's finest men. And when I say that, patient, loving, caring. Uh, and when I say patient, patient with our disease, because my wife was very patient. Matter of fact, our, on our first date. She saw me snorting cocaine out of a $20 bill. She saw me halfway polish off a bottle of uh, uh, Remy Martin. And she didn't run. She just was never exposed to anything like that. And when we talked about it later on that day, I said, oh, I'm sorry. I was having fun. She says, oh, I, um, I don't drink, but, my, you know, it's in my family. And uh, why she didn't run? Uh, well, I know why she didn't run. That'll be explained later on, too. And uh, we moved in together and against our family's wishes because we both come, her family's Baptist, my family's Pentecostal, and they both were totally against it. And uh, I began to drink a little bit more heavily again. I had slowed down a little bit when my first wife and I broke up. And I remember uh, um, one day we were sitting up and my, my wife uh, asked me, she says, well, well, can you stop doing that? I said, doing what? She says, Drinking like you do, and, and, you, and you do other things too, but it's the drinking I'm really concerned with. I said, well, I'll slow down. I did slow down for about three years, and our sons were born. Our first three sons were born. And uh, uh, my wife, I, I had to ask her later on, you know, <clears throat> I was drinking heavy then. Why did you want kids, you know, with me the way I was? She said, number one, she said, I wanted to have if you were going to drink yourself to death, and I knew you were on your way to doing that, I wanted to you to leave me something, and so you left. You'll leave me these three boys, and it learned out later on turned into two more boys, and um, but our relationship um, kind of blossomed for a while, and then we had the uh, my other two sons while she was in in nursing school. My wife had two more, and uh, she did graduate nursing school, and by that time. Uh, um, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I wound up uh, going to a program later on, uh, MPI in Oakland, Mary Peralta Institute. That was about 92. And it was, uh, wasn't good. It wasn't good. And then when I got out of there, I promptly relapsed. I did do the aftercare for a while and pretty soon dropped out and went back to doing what I love to do. There were many instances where I went to work, drunk. I remember one day, we were taking this train through Jack London Square. And the train was a, a mile and a half long. And I was in the caboose. We were leaving Oakland Yard, going to the Fifth Avenue Yard. And I remember my boss jumping up on the caboose. And it kind of surprised me. And uh, I said, hey, how you doing? He says, I'm pretty good. He said, he says well, come here. I came over. He says, you been drinking? I said, uh. Yeah, that was last night. I'd been drinking in that caboose. And he says, I make, I'll make a suggestion. 
we get to East Oakland Yard, you take off sick. This was one of the worst guys in the railroad. He'd fire you for anything. God was working in my life. He had something for me to do. And it was something, every time these instances came up where I was almost busted for drugs, something happened that I, I got out of it. And it wasn't because of my prowess. And then we, it got to the point where things uh, escalated. And I remember another time we were coming through uh, Jack London Square and I went to Richmond to pick up propane cars. We're coming through Oakland with 60 propane cars. We're taking them to the Fifth Avenue yard. And I saw these guys sitting on the side taking pictures. So I assumed they were railroad buffs. So like we got out in the front of the engine coming through Jack London Square. We start waving at these guys, you know. And we get to the yard and my boss calls me in and he says, uh, were you on the front of an engine riding through Jack London Square? I said, yeah. And I was drunk. I was drunk when I was talking to him. And uh, he said, uh, uh, those guys that have taken the pictures, they weren't, uh, they weren't fans of the railroad. They were the PUC. And they were there to see how you handle your cars coming through Jack London Square. You know we don't ride on the front of the engine in, in public, coming through public places and down the middle of streets. They want me to fire you right now, but I'm not going to do it. And uh, he says, we are going to have a drug test. And I'm thinking, why are we having a drug test? He said, because you got to be, they think you got, something's got to be wrong with you. And do you know, uh, at that time, what I would do was I'd have my son pee in a pot. And I would take that pee and, and uh, make sure it stayed hot, put it in the right place. And when I took the urine test, I would use that pee. And I passed that test. Later on, and I didn't, my boss, for some reason, didn't say anything about the alcohol in my breath. He would not let me see the PUC. The, uh, the PUC officials wanted to ring me out. They were in the other room. He says, go out, the, go out the back in your car and go home. That was another time. What ended it was my wife. I was, uh, we had moved to Antioch. We bought a house out here. And I was, I had put this patio in. And my sons and I were on the patio looking up at the, uh, try, trying to teach him how to tell a, a satellite from a plane. And my wife comes out. And she opens the sliding door and throws a phone in my lap. And she says, somebody wants to talk to you. By that time, my marriage was really bad. She was sleeping on one side of that king-size bed, and I was on the other. The middle of that bed was perfectly smooth. On each end was a dent from our body sleeping there for so long. And uh, the person on the other end of the line was the uh, EAP from my job. My wife had turned me in. And I was pissed. And so I asked the EAP person, I said, well, uh, she says, yeah, well, we heard you have a problem with alcohol. I said, no, I have a problem with my wife. It's not alcohol, it's her. She's the one that's the problem. I'm having a good time. I, I work for my family. I, I bought this house. I, I maintain this house. And uh, she says, well, evidently, she thinks you have a problem. And uh, that's what I'm concerned with. And so we talked for quite a while. And it's something, it, it's just something about talking about uh, um, the things the things that you do when you listen to a person talk to you, that's a professional. And I began to see some of the things she was talking about. And she said, I'm going to suggest a program. I said, okay, uh, what program do you suggest? She said, Kaiser. Um, then I have CFR. 
And I can't think of what the third program was. I said, I like the initial CFR. What's what's CFR? She said, Center for Recovery. And that's at a um, John Muir Hospital. And needless, needless to say, it, I never knew I, I would become a volunteer there after, after. For quite a, for 14 years, I became a volunteer in that program, uh, speaking on the third Monday of every month to alcoholics. And um, so I said, yeah, I'll take it. I'll go there. Well, I didn't go right away. I wanted to do a little bit more partying to have it a little bit more fun. So I went up drinking some more. Two weeks later, I called and uh, said, uh, my name is Calvin Watkins. I called there about two weeks ago and I'm ready to come in. And they, uh, she found my uh, my papers and she says, okay, come in Monday. And if you're if you're intoxicated or anything in your system, I'm going to put you in detox. I said, okay. So I hadn't taken anything other than an alcohol. And alcohol pretty well pretty well leaves the system pretty quickly. So I came there and I was okay. And so my wife, poor woman, she dropped me off with this suitcase because she knew she was rid of me for quite a while. Well, when I got there and I wasn't in, I didn't have anything in my system, they said, uh, well, we're not going to keep you in the inpatient program. We're going to put you on the outpatient program. And this is what we're going to do. And so I called my wife to come back and pick me up. And I never will forget the look on her face because my wife actually thought she was rid of me. She was tired. She was tired of the alcohol, the drinking, disappearing, um, cursing her out, calling the bitches, excuse my language, calling her all kind of names, acting crazy. And so um, I, I did the program. That was in 2002. I coined out. I had a counselor there. A very good counselor, matter of fact. I think the lady was psychic because she says, you'll be back. I said, oh, no, I won't. She says, you'll be back. She says, do you have a sponsor? I said, uh, what's that? She says, you mean to tell me you've been in this program all this time? You don't even know what a sponsor is? She says, you'll be back. And I came back a year later. <laughs> I promptly relapsed. And when I relapsed, I relapsed. Um, I did aftercare for a little while. Because I, I got out, I think it was in June, and I did have to care up until September. When I when I relapsed, my wife had went on a cruise with their sisters. She thought everything was good. And uh, she called one day. She called home. And uh, on this cruise, they stopped in Catalina Island. And, uh, she, and my son had answered the phone. And I heard, when I opened the door, I never will forget it. I heard my son say, oh, mom, dad just walked in the house. I said, oh, God. So I, the house is kind of big. So I was trying to figure out, should I run up the stairs the back way or take off out the door? And I decided to run up the stairs. And he appeared right in front of me and said, mom's on the phone. And uh, my wife was crying, upset. Because by that time, we had my my sixth child, which was my little, my little daughter. And she, I think Nina was only about two or three years old. She says, you, you're leaving our three-year-old daughter with our sons? I said, well, they're teens. They can take care of her. She said, I, I told her, I'm just going out to have a little fun. And my, I never will forget my wife crying on that phone. I messed up really bad. And I, not only did I mess up, I disappointed her. And not only did I disappoint her, she didn't know what was going to happen with her, with her daughter and these being with her with, with her brothers and me not there under adult supervision. So I wound up going back a year later 
because the nightmare had already started. And I went to, to back into a uh, um, CFR in April of 2003. And uh, I remember my, my counselor said, I told you to be back. And she said, you never got a sponsor, did you? I said, no. She said, you didn't go to those meetings, did you? I said, I went to a few NA meetings and some AA meetings. She says, yeah, but you never got a sponsor, Calvin. You're not going to stay sober until you do the steps. And I hadn't done the steps. I came in one day. It was a Saturday as I was doing the program there. And uh, Saturday is family day. But on family day, the families of the, of the patients there come in and they have uh, refreshments and they get to have uh, see a speaker meeting. They usually have three speakers and uh, these are husbands and wives and, and, and the kids. And uh, um, my wife did come. She didn't want to be bothered. And, but, uh, uh, and I could blame her. I never held that against her. But my count, one of the counselors walked up, Nancy said, Calvin, she said, you never had a sponsor, huh? I told her, Nancy, I don't need a sponsor. I sponsor myself. She says, well, when you have a fool for a sponsor, you'll wind up in this program three or four times like you're about to do. This is what number, the second time? I said, yes, said, you need a sponsor. I got a sponsor for you. I said, okay, who's my sponsor? She says, we have, you know, we have three speakers. I said, yeah. She says, that gentleman right there sitting there. I said, Nancy, there's three guys there. Which one? The ball hit him. I said, Nancy, two of the guys are ball hit. Which one? She says, the black guy. Right then, I said, broad is racist. All these white people in, a, in, in, in Contra Costa County, and she gives me a brother. She's racist. She doesn't. And I don't even know this guy. And then she says, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Calvin, after you after you hear him speak, and uh, he needs a ride home because he, he, he doesn't drive. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this man doesn't even drive. What am I going to do? After the, I heard him share, and his share touched me. It touched me in a way that made me see this man differently. But I don't listen uh, very well. And sometimes when I do, I react differently. And when he came to me and introduced my, himself and I shook his hand, he asked me, he says, uh, um, you know, I need a ride home. Can you give me a ride home? I said, well, Nancy told me you need a ride home. So we're riding in the car and we're leaving Concord and he lived in Brentwood. I stayed in Antioch and uh, a truck jackknifed in front of us. I never forget it was going sideways and we had just about reached Brentwood in the bypass and I hit my brakes and I went to a slide and I'm thinking, oh my God, we're going to both die, <laughs> you know? And uh, I stopped the car. And, we were, and my sponsor said, God was with us. And I said, yes, he was. And uh, while we're waiting in this truck to move, I asked him, I said, how come you don't drive? He said, well, uh, you know, I'm a convicted fellow. You heard my story. I spent eight years in the pen and, uh, uh, in Chicago. And uh, uh, you can't get your license. You can't vote. He said, well, I said, well, hey, man, uh, so, what, how, so what happened? I mean, why would you not drive? He said, because I... My wife and I bought a new car and I went to this meeting called the Roadrunners. And I remember his exact words. He said, oh, by the way, that's a meeting you uh, hopefully you're going to attend. And I said, well, what happened? He says, well, I went there and the guys were patting me on the back, telling me, you know, from a convicted felon to a to a married husband and a and a wonderful 
person in my community and doesn't it feel good to drive a car and have license and not and have the cops not stop you and he said uh he said uh i told him i didn't have my license and he looked at me and says we suggest you don't drive programs about honesty and uh he said that's why i don't drive i said well man i don't have my license and i said i'm driving you around he says i can't ride with you anymore i have i can't ride with you anymore i I just, I know, man, I'm, I'm a convicted felon. Anyway, my sponsor knew my history about my church upbringing. I'd been raised in church, sung in choirs, did albums, and I still sing to this very day. And uh, um, he used to call me church boy. And he said, you know something, man? Uh, um, you know a little bit about God. And uh, I said, I know a lot about God. He said, well, you don't know enough to keep to stay sober. And he says, but well, I'm going to tell you something. You remember we talked about honesty? I said, yeah. He said, it's the crux of this program. And he says, we haven't worked the steps, but I'm going to read something to you. And I'm going to read what he wrote to, read to me. He said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. He says, you know what that word thoroughly means? I said, yeah, entirely. He says, correct. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this program, simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. He says, you know why you're an alcoholic? Because you're not honest with yourself, number one. Your life has been one whole big lie. We started with step one. We started, matter of fact, we started with the preface. And we read the first and second and third and fourth edition. We read the doctor's opinion and we got to Bill's story. And uh, he says, you're going to find some amazing things in Bill's story. And I said, uh, uh, yeah. He says, well, let's just read it. And we get to page 12. And Bill's talking about the intellectual mountain that he hid behind. You know, he could go for some terminology, spirit of the universe, a spirit of nature. But he couldn't come to, to say God, a sar of the heavens. And as we read, he said, uh, now, you notice what he's saying now. He said, he said, he's many, I have met many men who felt the same way. He says, you know what that means? I said, yeah, he doesn't want to say God. He says, correct. And he met many men in Alcoholics Anonymous didn't want to say God. He says, you're going to have to say it. I said, I said it all my life. He says, you don't believe it. You don't have faith. And as we begin to work and we begin to, to read this thing, when Bill stepped out from behind that intellectual mountain and he says, get, the, get rid of the intellectualism, the reasoning. Try to accept what God has done for you. He says, how long has it been since you drank? And I told him it had been, I think, 47 days. And uh, um, and he says, God's working in your life. I said, no, he is. He says, but you're not listening. Well, just after that conversation, I went out and I relapsed. It was my last relapse. It was uh, November uh, 13, uh, excuse me, <laughs> November 13, 2003. It's my last relapse. That relapse cost me a lot. Some of us don't make it back. Some of us lose jobs. Uh, a lot, many of us lose our lives. Uh, I lost my family. Uh, my wife asked me not to come home. And uh, I remember uh, my sponsor, when I, when I called him and told my relapse, he says, yeah, your wife called me last night when you didn't come home yesterday afternoon. You, you stayed away all afternoon and then you went straight to work. So she knew something was on. And uh, when I came into CFR that morning to talk to her, 
I asked where she was and they said she was in the office. Well, I didn't know she was she was in a class. And and, and my little silly mind, I, I walked over there and I saw all these people sitting in there and she saw me looking through the door. And I took off running. I really did. And this guy came out and said, hey, are you Calvin? Come back, come back. Michelle says, come back. So I came back to that office. I mean, to the uh, to the meeting. And she says, this is Calvin. And Calvin said hello to the group. And I said, hello. She says, what are you? And she, I said, I'm an alcoholic. She says, I want you to explain to the group the anatomy of a relapse. Calvin relapsed last night. <laughs> Say you. That was the most embarrassing moment of my life. And the worst was when we got to the office, she says, uh, you lost the right to be a father. Um, you're going to have to leave your house. And I said, I'm not leaving my house. I've done that before. She says, yeah, you have to. And uh, so I told her I wasn't. I went home. It was a Tuesday. And uh, nobody would speak to me, my sons, my wife. So it got to the point where it got so bad until I, uh, by Friday, I decided Saturday morning I'll go look at this this SLE they're talking about. When I got there, I was home. I knew it. This is where I needed to be. It was God talking to me. He had been talking to me all along and I hadn't listened. He'd been talking to me all my life. And he was just waiting for me to listen. And I listened that morning. Uh, the, pro, the the show wasn't over yet, though, because uh, I called my sponsor, my grand sponsor, Kent Davis. My sponsor told me to call him and he said, uh, I suggest you stay there a year. And me being Calvin, not listening, I, I decided to stay six months because my wife came and told me she wanted me to come home. And I proceeded to put that woman through hell for five years. There's a difference between uh, sobriety and recovery. Recovery is without God. This is when we decide to stop drinking ourselves. And some people are very successful at it. Very few are, but some are. Recovery is when we let God in he, and he removes the obsession for us to drink. And that's why it says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And, and you know, there's something in the book on page 33, it says, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. It was only by the grace of God I stayed out 24 hours. And when I, when I, uh, after five years, my wife kicked me out. And because uh, uh, she got tired. You see, if you don't recover, you still have the alcoholic mind. Read the book. Tells you that all through the book. Tells you about the Jekyll and Hyde uh, 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 syndrome. The actor who wants to always run the show. You stop drinking. The personality was already there before you even started drinking. It just made it worse. And as I begin to see these things, and as I begin to uh, uh, grow, I begin to understand that I'm a sick. I'm still sick. I haven't recovered, and I'm, I was sponsoring. And I remember my sponsor. I think I got five more minutes. And I remember my sponsor saying, uh, "Huh? Okay, five minutes. Okay." And I remember my sponsor saying, "Uh, you got a lot of sponsees." I said, yeah. He says, so you've been lying to them. I said, what do you mean? Tell them about how to stay sober. He says, but you, you, Calvin, to be a good counselor, you have to do what you, what they, what you suggest they do. And I said, yeah. He says, so you're going to have to start doing that. And he said, in the meantime, you had three of your sponsors that were having problems with their wives. Your wife just kicked you out. 
and you sitting up there telling them how to do it. I want you to go to them and, and ask them for, for forgiveness. Make amends to them for lying to them. Because I'm sure you told them your marriage was great. And I did. And I apologize to these men. And I, I'm, I'm still their sponsor to this very day. I, one, so one of them, one, two of them relapsed later on. I went back with my wife. And, I, and, and learning the difference between recovery and sobriety was eye-opening for me. I love the book Living Sober. And it's a great book. But... But without, without recovery, without God in your life, the book says either God is or he isn't. He's either, he, 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 God is either everything or else he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Bill was trying to show us half measures are not working in this program. I, my, I remember I, I used to leave meeting. I, we were leaving this meeting and I told my sponsor, I said, uh, I wanted this guy who was talking about powerless. He said, I'm powerless over people, places, and things. So I'm walking out this meeting, and so my, my sponsor, he, his favorite word is parrot. I don't want you to hear parrot anything unless it's in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I told him I was, I'm like that guy, I'm proud of so people place the thing. He said, I'm, let me explain something to you, Calvin. It is not your job to be in charge of people. That's God's business. So you're supposed to be powerless there. But guess what? How many people have you offered hope? I said, quite a few. It's up to them to accept it. Now let's go to people. Now let's go to places. Do you go to the same places you used to go to? I said, no. I said, he said, do you do the same things you used to do? I said, no. He said, why? Because powerlessness was our dilemma. God empowered you. Not only did he empower you, he empowered you against the pull of alcohol. He didn't get rid of the disease. The disease will always be there. But do you crave alcohol anymore? No. God does wonderful things for us in our life we, if we just expose ourselves to what to uh, um, so what I got a, a three more minutes. I want to uh, read something on page twenty eight. I'm a I'm a book nut, and uh, Penny page twenty eight says uh, if we have if we have learned and felt and seen and mean and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color are the children of a living creator, a living creator, not one we created, a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest, honest and enough to try. And uh, I remember I was telling my sponsor how much, uh, how uh, he couldn't help me in a lot of situations and because uh, I knew more about the Bible than he did. And I was raised in church, even though it didn't do me any good. And I want to read this real quick before we go. He said, let me read something to you on page 93. And he says, your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he's going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions, his own knowledge of, of this supposedly God he's supposed to believe in, why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. Church boy, sponsor wasn't a church boy. We have been together now for quite a while and I use my sponsor and I still use him. My sponsor kind of kicked me off and said, you know, you're supposed to go out and sponsor other people, but you call me when you need me. I don't want hangers on. I don't want you hanging on to me. I'm not your father. I'm your sponsor. And when you need me, call me. We've had a wonderful relationship, and I've had a wonderful relationship with my sponsees. 
I sponsor I sponsor many people and 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 uh it's only because uh like my sponsor said it's what you need to stay sober. I need I need my sponsees to stay sober. That's why God put so many in my life. He says that not be for everybody. Some people don't need that. You need it because he's got something for you to do. And I want and you know I was diagnosed with leukemia in 2016. And uh, I'm in remission now, but it taught me the importance of life, the importance of life, how important God is. And, and God had something, those prayers that my grandmother used to pray when I was a young man was saving something up for me today. And now they've come to fruition. My wife and I have a wonderful relationship. She said, it's like we first met, you know, and it really is. Been that way for quite a while. We travel together. We do things together. We have fun. We get on each other's nerves sometimes, but our relationship is so tight. Our children, nobody's on drugs. Everybody's a professional, engineers. One is a nurse like my wife. Another one's a musician. Uh, God has been good to me. He has really been good to me. And I embrace him in his program, and I embrace his son also. And uh, I have no worries. And what keeps me going, even through the troubling times, is my faith that he will bring me through in his time, not Calvin's. Anyway, thank you.